Philippians 1 is where we're at. We're going to read 27 through 30. This is just kind of the natural section. We covered verse number 27 last Sunday, but we'll continue the thought process and go 28 through 30 this week. But let's read these four verses together. Philippians 1 verse 27 says this, Only let your conversation, that means lifestyle or conduct, only let your lifestyle be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that ye stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and in nothing terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation and that of God. For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which he saw in me and now here to be in me. I'll warn you up front, the scriptures for the next couple weeks are going to get mean for a little bit. They're going to say some things that we just don't naturally like and will go against our grain as Americans, but they're true nevertheless. So I'm excited to, to dive into this text this morning. I want to uh, start with verse number 30 actually this morning where Paul says, having the same conflict which he saw in me and now here to be in me. And Paul is saying, you're having, you're experiencing the same conflict which you saw and here to be in me. He's saying, I'm, I'm not asking you to go any further than I have gone. <laughs> you know, Philippians, you were in Philippi when I first came. And you saw the conflict that was in me. You know that I planted this church, I, I witnessed, and that persecution befell me because of that. I was beaten, I was flogged, I was in prison. Even the Philippian jailer locked him in prison, had, was given this charge to keep Paul safely and really not to do any further damage to him. But he puts him in maximum security and, and he puts him in bonds and tortures him for the fun of it. And he says, even the Philippian jailer that came to faith in Christ, you know, you saw the, the persecution, the conflict that was in my life, and you hear that it's in me now. You hear that now I'm in prison, that now I'm facing an impending execution, that I will be maybe exonerated, but maybe executed, and that persecution and conflict is still coming my way. You have seen this. You have heard this. And he says, Philippians, you are now having, you are now experiencing the same thing. That you are in Philippi, the deeply patriotic town, and they're not responding well to your gospel message. They're not enjoying the fact that there's one king and that's King Jesus and not Caesar. Now you are having persecution come your way. Now you are having conflict come your way. So in light of the conflict, in light of the persecution, Paul's going to give this church some really vital instruction to stabilize them and to help them move through this while keeping Jesus at the forefront. And we covered verse 27 last week, which is part of the thought, that Paul says, don't live beneath your theology. Have your life match your message. You should, as a church, you should stand, you should strive, you should share in the gospel message. So make that, make Jesus your center and your circumference, make it all about him, and, and do that. But understand, when you take a stand for truth, you're going to have a head-on collision with error. And Paul begins to, in verse number 28, talk about the opposition that they faced. And he says, and in nothing terrified by your adversaries. He says, when you become a follower of Jesus, there are going to be people that oppose you. You're going to join Team Jesus, but not everybody else is on Team Jesus. And they're not going to be happy that you are on Team Jesus, and you are going to have some adversaries. You're going to have some conflict. There's going to be something that comes your way that people are going to oppose you, and you are 
you're going to potentially be criticized or misunderstood or persecuted, which has always been the case. For two millennia, the church has been that way. The church that really takes a stand on truth and proclaims the gospel message boldly will be in opposition to a culture around them that does not embrace the gospel message. And Paul knew this. Paul knew it was like to be terrified by his adversaries. You find a passage of Scripture in Acts 18 where Paul goes to Corinth, and Paul is literally shaking in his boots. He doesn't want to go out and talk about Jesus to these people any longer because he's scared of what will happen to him. And the Lord comes to Paul and tells him, Paul, be not afraid, but speak and hold not thy peace. Paul, don't be scared. Open your mouth, talk. And for 18 months, Paul swallows his fears and he shares the gospel message with the people in Corinth. So Paul had experienced this personally. He knew what it was like to be terrified by his adversaries, and he encourages this, this church. It's a decade old now. He encourages them to continue in the gospel and to not let the opposition that they're facing intimidate them. Even though this may seem formidable, even though they would naturally be scared, he's trying to tell them, don't be scared, don't be terrified of this. You say, Pastor, shouldn't they be scared? Like, this isn't just they'll be criticized or someone will type something bad about them on Facebook. These people could die, literally die for what they're saying. And Jesus tackled this issue. Jesus said, don't fear them, which can kill the body, but not kill the soul. Fear him, which can kill both the body and the soul in hell. Don't live out of a fear of man. They can just affect your body. Live out of a fear of God because he, he controls it all. And this is what Paul is trying to tell the, this young church. Here's the bottom line. Reorientate yourself with the gospel. Make Christ your center and circumference. Live for him. Speak that message and live as though Jesus is king of all. He's king of the world, but he's king of your heart. He's king of your life. He's king of your words. He's king of your actions. And when you do that, understand there's a huge portion of any society that does not have Jesus as king of their heart. And naturally, you will be out of step with them. Naturally, you will, you will appreciate things that they don't appreciate. You will say things that come into, into conflict with them. Naturally, you'll step on some toes a bit and some hostility and some persecution and some misunderstanding may come your way. You may have some adversaries that oppose you. And this instruction tells us, even as modern Americans, that don't face a lot of persecution. Let's just be real. We don't. But it tells us, even as modern Americans, don't be scared. Now, if you're anything like me, even in our culture, with not a lot of persecution, this still hits home. It's very easy to be scared of what someone may do or say or think or, or what could happen to us or how they could oppose us because we want to be liked, don't we? We want to be accepted. We, we want to feel apart. Our social media culture tells us this, right? We post something and we check 18 times how many people liked it. Like, the, like there's some bar, you know, I have to get to 200 or to 500 or to 1,000 or whatever. It is. This many people, some of you, your phone notifies you every time someone likes it. And it's literally like a 200 buzzes a day that's just buzzing you constantly to tell you, you've been liked, you've been liked, you've been liked. Some of us get all messed up when someone unfriends us or they don't like us or they, they post something that, that's critical or contrary to what, to what we believe. We're checking how many followers do I have, how many people are in tune with me and they, they like what I have to say or what, what I post. We're told don't talk about what? Religion and politics, right? Because those could be controversial. 
I don't care if you talk about politics, but I do care if you talk about your faith and your religion. The Bible doesn't tell you to talk about politics, but it does tell you to open your mouth and to talk about Jesus and to share that with other people. And, and the tr- there is truth in that. It is sometimes controversial. It do- sometimes people don't appreciate it. That's absolutely true. There may be someone that opposes you because of that. You may create an adversary of sorts, not someone that you're tr- constantly trying to battle and win with and that you're trying to be mean to, not that, but you may have someone that doesn't appreciate it. But that doesn't mean shut down and clamor up and don't share it. Paul's saying share the message, be reorientated by the gospel, and understand that there's going to be adversaries that, that come your way. There will be some opposition that comes your way. And we, we all feel this and we all wrestle with this. If you don't, I would just ask you, do you struggle at all to share the gospel with your neighbors? No, Pastor, I do, but it's not because I'm scared. It's because they don't really know me that well. Okay, do you struggle at all to share the gospel with people that know you well, your family? Well, Pastor, it's not because I'm scared. It's because they know me too well. You know what's happening? Mental gymnastics. The bottom line is we're scared of how someone may respond. What, what will happen? What will they think? What will they say? What, what, will, what will befall us potentially if I share the gospel with my boss? I may not get the promotion. What will happen? There's fear there. And Paul is telling this church, don't be threatened, don't be terrified, don't be scared by, by adversaries. And to be fair, Paul is aiming at, at real persecution here. He's, he's really aiming at people that, I mean, they would lock them in prison or beat them or kill them. That's really his aim here. But it's, it's appropriate to, to apply this in some broader ways. So be fearless. Who cares if they don't like you? Be fearless. Share it. Talk about it. Be willing to take the pay cut at work to stand for what's right or to share the message with someone else. Be willing to get on a plane and go across the ocean on a, on a mission trip that we have. In the next 12 months, we're going to, to London and a small team's going to Zambia and some of us are going to go to Vanuatu next summer. I just saw the Gauls over here caught, caught my eye just back from Macedonia. Be willing to do that. Don't be scared of what may come your way. And, and Paul's trying to to reinforce them with some courage and with, with some fortitude to say, look, stand for Jesus, and even if someone is, is in opposition to you, that's okay. Take it, embrace it, and stand. But it's not just there, there's, there's opposition that you have to face, but there's also an opportunity to be embraced when this happens. And this is the beauty of it all. Paul goes on to say, look, and nothing terrified by your adversaries, but look, there's an opportunity here. There's, there's an opportunity to be different, which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation in that of God. He's saying when you are not afraid and you're not phased by what someone else says about you or how they criticize you or how they come after you because you stand for, de- for Jesus, this is an evident token. This is a clear sign to them of their perdition or destruction, and this is a clear sign to you of your salvation. This actually tells you which team you're on, that that a fearless and unified church will astound the world. And they will look at what they're holding on to, what grips their heart, having money, the illusion of control, and they'll see your example, that you're not gripped by those things, that something else has gripped your heart and is governing your life, and it it will speak into them and help them see that there's a need and that they're actually headed on a path that does not lead to life but leads to destruction and that you have salvation. 
That this is actually an opportunity when, when criticism or, or persecution or suffering comes your way, this is a unique opportunity to show the world around you that there's something different inside and your response to that is not what their response would naturally be. But there's something else that controls you and has gripped your heart. And it's a, it's a two-sided coin. It shows the world that there's a deep need and that they're on a collision course for destruction and it shows you that what you have is real and that it satisfies and it helps to let you know that, you know what, I'm standing with Jesus and something negative is coming my way, but I'm okay, I'll stand here nevertheless, and it reinforces your faith and lets you know that what you have is actually real. You see this all through church history. I could give you a million examples this morning. I'll give you one. James, the brother of John, Peter, James, and John, who are always with Jesus. You find that James, according to the scriptures, was the second martyr that we know of. Stephen was first, James was second. Acts 12 records in, in two or three verses that Herod beheaded James. And that's all that the text really says. But church history has, has passed down the story through the years that James was facing his beheading because someone had accused him wrongly, purposefully, and had set him up basically so that he would be beheaded by the government. And there was a small trial that took place, and, and they found James guilty and that he was to be beheaded. So the night went by, and the next morning, James was headed to his execution. And the man that had wrongfully put forth the accusation had for 24 hours so watched James be fearless and respond to what was coming at him in such a weird, different way to this man that the man decided he wanted what James had. And he went to James and professed faith in Christ and asked James to forgive him. And the man knew that that meant that he would be executed as well. And James said, I forgive you. And both of them were beheaded side by side. Now, the Bible doesn't say that, that, that's church history, but you can look at a million stories like that all down through church history of people that have said, you know what, I'm going to stand for Christ, and that was used in a way to bring someone to Jesus, and they never, ever would have. You saw that in Philippi with Paul. The hard, calloused, ex-GI jailer tortures him for the fun of it. And Paul and Silas sing praises and then have an opportunity to escape prison and they don't escape prison. They stay right there and the jailer is so obliterated by their walk, by what they're doing with Jesus that he comes to them and says, I don't know what you got, but I want it. What must I do to be saved? Give me some of that. And that's over and over and over again. And opposition or suffering that comes your way is a unique opportunity to be and to look different in front of the world. But beyond that, and this is really what's tough in this text for us this morning, is verse 29, that there's an opportunity just to be a disciple. Here's what Paul says to them of their suffering or persecution. He says, for unto you it's given in the behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, We'd say, great, we have an opportunity to believe on Jesus. We love that. But also to suffer for his sake. And that's tough. But this comes with the territory. Jesus tried to frame this for the disciples over and over again. The servant's not greater than his master. Guys, they're going to persecute me, they'll persecute you. There's a cross to take up and to bear. That Jesus never shortchanged somebody and, and soft-pedaled the gospel to them. He, he was always very clear on what it meant and what was actually going to happen. And Paul says, look, there's, there's, just, there's just discipleship here. When you believe in Jesus, you're also given 
really it's an opportunity, is how he frames it, that you're also given some suffering. It comes, it comes along with it. It's part and parcel of being a Christian. Now, I do want to take a moment and dispel a few myths on this because there is an inherent danger here to misunderstand what Paul is saying. And this has been done pervasively through the centuries by, by different groups. And so I want to tell you what this does not mean because you have to understand this properly. All right, the, the same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay. And suffering that comes to you, if you misunderstand it and misinterpret it, it could have a propensity to actually harden your heart and to, and to be used against you rather than maturing you, which is one of the benefits of suffering. So you do need to understand it and, and get it proper. So I would say just several things on this. Avoid these pitfalls. Don't crave suffering. Suffering is not something that we are to, to look at and to want, that somehow there's virtue in pain. Suffering is given, is what the verse says. It's not to be self-inflicted. We'll actually cover this in greater detail tonight. It's amazing how, how the, the, the texts have lined up with each other. But Colossians 2 addresses this specific issue, and we'll talk about it tonight at 6 p.m. I encourage you, if you struggle with something like this, to come back. If you think that inflicting suffering on yourself somehow purifies you, if you tend to punish yourself after sin, if you tend to think that God somehow is going to, you know, exact his pound of flesh out of you because of, because of your sin, if you think that people are spiritual because they have taken a vow of poverty or somehow they suffer a lot, then I would encourage you to come back tonight. We'll talk specifically about this. The bottom line is this. Suffering's not something to be craved. We're told in Matthew 6 to pray the Lord's Prayer. Part of that Lord's Prayer is lead us not into temptation. That word temptation, biblically, 75% of the time is used in physical temptation, not spiritual temptation. Both are true in that moment. That's a petition of the Lord I don't, want, I don't want spiritual suffering and I don't want physical suffering. Lord, protect me physically. Lord, protect me spiritually. That's the petition. So we're told to pray that. Not, Lord, please give me suffering. I want it so badly. I crave this. I'm a glutton for punishment. So don't crave that. That would be, that would be a twist of Scripture. I would also say don't respond to the suffering of others in a glib way. There's a danger that you can say, well, suffering's part of discipleship. Suck it up and get over it. I'm sorry that you're sick. I'm sorry that this happens, but we all suffer for Jesus, so big deal. Whoop-de-doo. You can be dismissive if you're not careful. You can take this too far. And, the, and once again, the Bible speaks into that. It says, no, if one member of the body suffers, all the members of the body suffer. We bear each other's burdens. We help each other. We take it in a real way. We don't, we're not dismissive about it. I would also say don't view God as a bad gift giver. There's a danger of saying, okay, I don't want suffering. I'm going to pray. Protect me physically. Protect me spiritually. I don't want this. God knows this. He loves me. He knows that I don't want suffering, and yet he's given me suffering. You know, that's like me giving my son rocks for a, for a present for his birthday. God's a bad gift giver. No, 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 no. God is a loving father who knows what's best for us, and sometimes pain and suffering is best for us or even best for him. And if you're a parent, you get this. You take your kid to the dentist, right? Maybe, probably. You've given them a shot. Do they like the dentist? No. Do they like shots? No, it's painful. But you know that this is for their overall long-term health benefit, so you're willing to put them through a little bit of pain or suffering because it's actually for their good, right? 
And the same thing happens from our loving Heavenly Father who knows all and at times will enter things into our life that we don't necessarily enjoy, but we trust him. And he's not a bad gift giver and he's not a tyrant. He's not trying to get back at us. I would say this, and this is probably most applicable, at least I hear this the most as pastor, don't be quick to call something suffering. You have to distinguish between real suffering and pseudo-suffering. All right, so this could happen. Pastor, pray for me. My car just broke down. Engine locked up, blew up. I'm in a financial crunch right now, and just I don't know why God's allowed this into, into my life. I don't understand it. It's tough, but, but would you pray for me? Yes, I will. But before I, at, before I pray for you, did you change the oil? What's oil? Okay, this isn't suffering any longer. You neglected to maintain the machine. The machine broke. This is called cause and effect, not divine suffering. You were stupid, and now you're reaping the consequences of your stupidity. We don't get to pin this on God and say, woe is me, I'm suffering for Jesus. This happens in relationships sometimes. Pastor, I'm, just, I'm in a season of my marriage. Would you pray for me? It's just tough, but I'm, I'm trying to trust the Lord through this. I'm trying to... Didn't you cheat on her six times in the last two years? Well, yeah, but it's, okay, no, no, that's not suffering any longer. You're reaping the consequence of your sin, not suffering. We, we get the difference there? Even physically, and I, I don't want to be unkind this morning. Lord knows my heart. I'm, I'm not being unkind. But, but I, I want to be clear. There, there is some physical suffering the Lord can bring your way for, for just your maturation or for his glory, and, and we'll get to that in a moment. That can happen. But there's some physical suffering that's our own fault. You don't get to neglect your body for two decades straight and then blame God for the knee problems or the diabetes or whatever happened. That's not God just giving you suffering that, that you get to glory in. That's, that's not how it works. And the Bible actually says this, if, if you think that I'm just making it up. 1 Peter 2, 19 and 20. This is thankworthy. What's thankworthy, Peter? If a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. So if you, out of good conscience, serving the Lord, doing right, endure grief or suffer wrongfully, you can actually be thankful for that. That's a, there's, there's something praiseworthy there. But there's something that's not praiseworthy. And Peter, I'm glad he says this. For what glory is it if when ye be buffeted for your faults, ye shall take it patiently? What he's saying is if you do wrong and you suffer the consequences for your wrong, there's no glory there. Big deal you took that patiently. You're supposed to. So you faced the music and you owned up to your sin and you took it. You don't get credit for that. You don't get a cookie for that. There's, that's the way it's supposed to go. But he continues and he gives us the, the contrary. But if when ye do well and suffer for it, ye take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. You murder somebody and get life in prison, no glory. You preach the gospel and get life in prison, glory. See the difference? So don't be quick to just, just automatically assume that I'm suffering for Jesus all the time. That may not be the case. It may be the case that there's a lot of suffering and hurt that, that maybe the Lord has allowed into your life sitting right here in this room this morning. But there's some other things that are just kind of cause and effect of, of our own consequences or our own sins. So there, there's a very real tension to manage here. I'd love to just unpack all of the verses on this, but that's why I put them in your notes so that you can look at them later. But here's the bottom line of suffering, all right? We're not to desire suffering as if we're a glutton for punishment, but we are to accept the suffering that befalls us as divinely planned 
and to be used for the glory of God and for our own personal maturation. You get that? We don't, we don't crave it like we're a glutton for punishment, but we accept what comes our way as divinely planned and we trust in God and we understand that this will be used ultimately for his glory and for our own personal maturation. That's the Bible on suffering. And what Paul is saying here is that as a disciple, some of that suffering is going to come your way. The, the opportunity of discipleship is that there is actually a cross to bear. And this, I feel, speaks to a deep need in our lives because we live in a very materialistic, self-centered, self-absorbed, self-grandizing, self-centered day, not a self-sacrificing day. And suffering can be used in your own life for good in some extreme ways, but it's very antithetical to our culture. We are creatures of comfort. Not only do we have beds and pillows, we have eight layers of blankets, we have three pillows per person that are all constructed in the exact way, and we must sleep in that way. And it's not just a bed, it's a sleep number bed, so we can specify, you know, I'm 27.2 is my sleep number, with a heated mattress pad. That's us, creatures of comfort. We don't just have transportation to get to and from somewhere, which a lot of people don't have. Our transportation has so many creature comforts, it's nuts. There's so much, thank you, Kurt. I mean, it's, it's not just that I get to ride in this, in this vehicle that's protected from wind and the elements, but I have temperature control inside of my vehicle. And I not only have temperature control inside of my vehicle, I have temperature, temperature control for the driver and I have temperature control for the passenger because we could be three degrees different and we want to make sure that we adjust that purposefully. And I have not just a heated seat, but I have three levels of heated seat and the kids in the back get to control their temperature. That's, that's us. That's where we live. Just comfort over and over and over again. We, we, have, we have electric windows because this would be far too inconvenient, right? Some of the teenagers are like, what? Are you, is that like a new dance? <laughs> yes, it's called roll the window down, all right? And I'm young, but I drove a few cars that had that. I've been there. Some of the kids are like, I don't even know what, what are we laughing at? You used to have to roll your windows down with your hand manually. And it was extremely inconvenient. Your muscles would tense up. It was bad. <laughs> but but that's, that's uh, is it not? That's us. And I fear, I fear that you as an American have this idea that your life should be storm-free. And I don't know where you get that other than TV or culture. Because it's not in the Bible. The Bible tells us that we build upon the rock so that when storms come, we can withstand the storms, not that we're in a storm-free zone. You even look at history. History is just peppered with story after story after story after story of Christians who, who suffered and they, and they took it. And that should dispel the myth of the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel, which is garbage, that I will never have to suffer. If I believe in Jesus, everything will be good and my health will be good and I'll constantly have money and everything will be great. No, the Bible never says that. It says the opposite of that. Suffering through discipleship, it comes our way. And, and honestly, from the bottom of my heart, I apologize if you feel like your Christianity was bait and switch. I apologize if no one ever told you that your friends may not appreciate that you came to faith in Christ and they, and they may not be friends with you anymore. But that happens. I apologize if no one ever told you that you would come to faith in Jesus and your family may not just be, you know, giggling about it. 
They may look at this as condemnation on them that now you're changing from the inside out and their religiosity hasn't changed them one iota and now they're against you and they don't like it and they don't appreciate your Jesus stuff. I apologize if no one ever told you that not everyone at work would be, would be accepting of your faith and that you may actually lose out on some opportunities because of that. That, that may happen. But that is, that's part of being a disciple to understand that what, here's what Paul says. It's given to you not just to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. I think William Barclay said it, said it best. He said, I walked a mile with pleasure and she chatted all the way, but left me none the wiser for all she had to say. I walked a mile with sorrow and not a word said she, but oh, the things I learned from sorrow when sorrow walked with me. And isn't that the truth? If you've, if you've gone through a storm, you know that to be true. That you learn and you grow and you're matured in some, in some deep ways that you otherwise would not have been if not for that. I want to give you, in closing, I just want to give you some helps for embracing what I would call the opportunity of suffering. And that's, that, is, that is the biblical view. It's thankworthy. It's praiseworthy. There's, there's joy to be had. There's an opportunity, actually, when true suffering comes our way. So how in the world do we embrace that? How in the world do we get to a place where we can be thankful for what comes into our life. And that's, and this is where it gets applicable because I know some of you have to put up with some really hostile people at work. I, I know that some of you are rejected by your family and you're seen as you know, a zealot or a loon because of your faith. I, I get that some of you have been given a physical trial this year. So how can you, how can you embrace this? What helps do we have from Scripture to help us get to a place of joy through our suffering. And there are helps. So I'm going to give you eight things very quickly, and we'll dwell on the last one because that's the most important, I think. I'd say first it brings us closer to Christ. Paul's going to cover this in two chapters. Philippians 3 verse 10, he says, I want to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. The world can mock and persecute. The suffering can come our way. And in a way, it helps us understand what Christ went through. That he was reviled, but he didn't revile himself. That he suffered, but he didn't cause others to suffer himself. In a way, it draws us closer to Christ. It also brings assurance of salvation. This is what he just said in verse number 28, that it is to us an evident token, a clear sign of our salvation. People attack you, and it tells you whose side you're on. It lets you know that, that I'm on team Jesus, and they're opposed to Jesus, so it brings assurance of salvation. It even brings a future reward. There's a lot of verses on this, but Jesus said of those that suffer for him that great was their reward in heaven. Romans tells us that our light affliction brings an exceeding glory. And there's actually something eternal to be had for our suffering. It also results in the faith of others. Several weeks ago, we covered this in Philippians 1, verse 12, where Paul says, the things that have happened unto me, my imprisonment, my persecution, has actually fallen out rather to the furtherance of the gospel. You wouldn't think that this would be used to bring other people to Jesus, more so than if I was just out there on the streets evangelizing, but it actually has worked out so that the gospel is being furthered and my persecution is being used in a way for, for Jesus in his name. It serves as, as an example to others who may follow us. This is really what Paul's saying in verse number 30. Look, you have the same conflict which he saw in me and he here to be in me. Look, guys, you know what I went through. You're going through the same thing. We can help each other through this. You, you know that this isn't unique, that you're not, 
You're not alone. That Jesus, the the apostles, the prophets, the church always has suffered. That we're not alone in this. And, And isn't this real? When someone that you know is going through a trial or a test, doesn't that somehow help you? I know that I don't even know if they're in the room this morning. I haven't seen them, but I know that probably half the room would know the look of Boz and their story. And not to just single out, I, there's a lot of suffering in the room this morning. I know that there is, but I, I, man, I look at a family that's gone through leukemia with a kid and Parkinson's with dad at the same time. It makes my my little test feels small. And in a way, it encourages us, does it not? It it fortifies our faith because we're following after us and we look and say, man, if someone else can be faithful and they can go through that and they can have a good testimony and they can have joy and they can, something can grip their heart in those moments, then, then I dare say I can as well. So it helps others who follow after us. It It perfects us for usefulness. I'd love to walk through this passage, but I don't have time. Romans 5 tells us that we can glory in tribulation because that tribulation can be used for our maturation. It can work patience. It can cause the love of God to be shed abroad in our hearts. It is actually used for our benefit. It even weeds out superficial believers. 1 John, they went out from us because they were not among us. If, if they had been of us, they, they would not have fallen away. That's, that's what he says. So it weeds out superficial believers. But I would say most importantly, and really what Paul's trying to get at in Philippians 1.29 is that it glorifies the Lord. He says in verse 29, and you may have missed these few key phrases, unto you it's given in the behalf of Christ. Not only to believe on him, but also to suffer. Why? For his sake. That he has suffered for our sake. His body was broken for us for our sake. His blood was shed for us for our sake. He laid down his life for the sake of the sheep. He died for the sake of the ungodly. And in turn, we look and say, he suffered for us immensely for my sake. If if some suffering or persecution comes my way, then I will gladly reciprocate. I will gladly do this for his sake so that his name can be made great. So that he can get some glory, so that other people can be drawn to him, so that people can, can enter into a relationship for him. If my suffering is used for that purpose, then, then to God be the glory, I will take it. Spurgeon said it well. He said, the suffering that you now have is the black velvet upon which the diamond of God's glory can shine. Well, what a word picture. Our suffering is just this dark background so that God can sparkle a little bit more to a world around us. And this is really the point that Paul has in Philippians 1, that, that our suffering is a means to an end, and the end is not ourselves. The end is the glory of God. The end is exalting him, the reason that we would be fearless, the reason that someone could, could mock us or persecute us or suffering could come our way, or we would spend a lot of money and, and risk even some, some certainty or, or some physical well-being by going way across the world on a mission trip or being a missionary, whatever it may be, the reason we do that isn't, isn't and it's some total because of us, it's because of him. It's because he's done so much for us and he's done so much for our sake. How could we not look at that and say, Jesus, I'll do anything for you? That I will gladly bear my cross. I will gladly take a little bit of this. I will stand in the gospel. 
I will strive for the gospel. I'll open my mouth. I will not be scared. I will be fearless. And if something comes my way, then for your glory, amen. And I don't, I don't know. Some of you actually I do know, but for most of you I don't know the suffering that is in your life right now, but there probably is some. You're probably just getting into a storm or just coming out of a storm or you're right in the middle of a storm right now. And understand that that, that is part and parcel with Christianity. But there is, there's a lot of good that can come out of that. For you, but also for him. So don't shy away from it. Don't, don't have a martyr complex and think, woe is me all the time. We can glory, be happy, we can joy. And this is tough. This is so, this is so countercultural. It's so against our grain. But Paul says it so clearly. Don't be terrified by them. You're fine. Understand that you're, if you're given belief in his name, you're also given some suffering. I had it. You had it. I could say the same thing to you. Paul had it. They had it. We're going to have it. I don't know what exactly it'll look like. Honestly, it is at such a minimum in our American society. It's at such a minimum. But nevertheless, it's there. And it can mess with us. And this, this word tells us that we can join it, we can accept it, and we can look at it as an opportunity and embrace it for our good and for his glory.